Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I had a fascinating conversation with Cameron Hughes a, a few weeks ago. He literally travels the world looking for good wine, for great wines, particularly from boutique wineries, wineries that you may not know of, never heard of. And, you know, th- these wineries, they'll produce typically some extra wine every year. They do that because on the front end, they commit to... You know, they, they get purchasers who commit to a certain number of cases. And in order to know that they're definitely going to be able to make, say, 500 cases of wine this year, they do production for 600 cases. And just in case something goes bad, because inevitably something does. But very often they end up with an extra 100 cases of wine. And, you know, the, the channels for distributing it are already locked up. They've already made their deal for the year. So Cameron Hughes comes along and says, I'll take that extra wine and I'm going to package it. I'm, actually, the wineries will bottle it in, in uh, bottles that have the Cameron Hughes label on them with a lot number. So you're not, you're, so what Cameron Hughes can do then is sell the wine to you at a dramatically lower price than these real high-end, beautiful, extraordinary boutique wineries are selling some of the world's best wines at. He can sell it to you at a much lower price because he's not degrading their brand essentially by discount, because these are wineries that would never, never imagine discounting their wines. They're so good, they're so in demand. And Cameron Hughes has picked this stuff up, and so you buy it with a lot number, like lot 633, this great Riesling, or what Louise and I had last night, it was lot 614, it was a Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley, a 2015 wine. And boy, has it aged well, it, is, it was so good, it was so deep and oaky and cherry and chocolate, and just the flavors were extraordinary. And the prices are spectacular. So check it out, chwine, as in Cameron Hughes Wine, chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Or you can text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So uh, text the word wine, W-I-N-E, that's what's associated with our program, our podcast here. Text the word wine, W-I-N-E, to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with a minimum three-bottle order. Exceptional value, extraordinary wine, Cameron Hughes Wine, chwine.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. It is Thursday, and yesterday, Congressman Pocan was not uh, able to be with us, and so uh, Middays with Mark is Thursday edition today. Congressman Pocan will be taking your calls on issues of the day, uh, the number 202-808-9925. And Congress, and, and I should mention, Congressman Pocan is the chair or the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, one of the top progressives in the House of Representatives. Pocan.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. And thank you for being with us. And, and uh, if I didn't say it, I think I did, but uh, our number is 202-808-9925, and Congressman Pocan will be with us for the hour taking your calls. Congressman, uh, you know, there's a lot going on um, that that I'm curious your thoughts on real quickly while, you know, the lines are filling up. Uh, I, I understand that today is the deadline for, or we're coming up on the deadline for families to be reunited. Actually, I thought it was yesterday, as I think about it. And also, you mentioned Congress is closing. But, but the, the th- and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And then finally, uh, Jim Jordan and, uh, oh, I forget who his buddy was who did it. Uh, Mark Meadows, I think. Yeah, that's right, Mark Meadows. Um, Proposed uh, impeaching Rod Rosenstein yesterday. You got 11 members of Congress behind this bill, which is a meaningless number. It's not going to make it out of committee. It's not going to make it to the floor. It it is 
It is pure PR. And the, the Progressive Caucus, the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is constantly inter introducing like really good, solid legislation that is not pure PR, that actually, I mean, from the budget that you guys do every year to, I, I, I know you've introduced a number of bills just in the last few weeks, uh, or the last few months, that seem to get no publicity whatsoever. And yesterday, at, at least on MSNBC, I think that the, this impeachment bill got at least an hour's worth of aggregate coverage, probably more. Um, what does this say about uh, the state of our democracy and the state of our media and the state yeah. of politics? Let me take the last one first, Tom. I mean, you know, I, I think often on this uh, show we have people call up and say, how come this isn't happening? How come you guys aren't doing this? And then we tell them, no, we actually did a press conference. We actually did this. We actually have been working on it. But if the corporate media doesn't pick it up, it didn't happen, right? Uh, that's unfortunately how it happens. This week, Tom, we introduced our uh, annual Progressive Caucus budget, a people's budget, which is a very comprehensive uh, roadmap to a lot of the bills that we introduced in the session. So there's a lot of uh, big ideas put out there. We're supposedly going to be taking up a budget vote uh, maybe when we come back in September. And yet, uh, while we had a few reporters did come, the only question they wanted to ask at the end was it was the day that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in town and they wanted to know uh, what she had to say. <laughs> you know, cause, mm -hmm. uh, That's the topic they had in front of them. <laughs> so it often is a challenge we have um, is to try to you know, take these more meaty issues and while we're not in the majority, yes, it's not going to happen. But, you know, these are actual issues that real people talk about uh, that just don't get picked up all too often by the corporate media. Yeah, it's like it's all about star power. And your thoughts yeah. on the uh, family reuni reunification and uh, Congress going on vacation? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, this is something I think, you know, people should know is this is the day that the House of Representatives, we all are home now for August, and we don't go back till after Labor Day. Uh, we should be traveling around our districts talking to people. This is a great opportunity to make meetings with your representative. Uh, find them at public, uh, hopefully if not doing town halls, public office hours. But take advantage of this time period to talk to them about whatever is important to you. One of those issues might very likely be the fact that today we are going to miss the court-mandated deadline to reunify all of the children uh, with their parents. And there's a lot of questions that remain. Uh, I think over 400 parents have been already deported. So now we've got to try to find them to reunify them with their children, which I find horrific that we uh, deported the parents before the children. Um, in a number of cases, they're telling us they're not going to reunify them because uh, of vague reasons, and we haven't really been able to get enough of why uh, that's not going to happen. But the bottom line is the poorly planned policy by Donald Trump uh, to separate families uh, at the border um, is still uh, a mess. We don't have people reunified. Uh, Five-year-olds can still be kept in a cage, only now it's with their mother when they come here. Uh, and there's a whole lot more that has to be resolved. So that may be one of the issues people want to bring up. Uh, during the next month when they've got a chance to see their member of Congress in the Senate. Yeah, there you go. And what, and what, what do you do if your member of Congress is a Republican and they only do telephone town halls and they, and they screen the questions in advance, and, or if uh, they don't do any kind of town hall? Yeah, the good news is we know they're probably in district at least a part of that month of August. So um, they can't tell you they're not you know, at the local office uh, uh. for them. So you should call the local office up. Uh, they'll probably do some public events. Uh, that will be listed, uh, go to those public events. But this is your opportunity to have that face-to-face -face time uh, with your local representative. Okay, cool. All right, let's pick up some calls. Every, every sure. line is full here. We've got calls from Washington to Wisconsin to California to Ohio to North Carolina to Virginia. Ben, in Cincinnati, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm an independent. I voted on both sides of the aisle. And what I constantly hear from the Democratic side is just we have to stop Trump. And you know, you know, Trump is obviously trying to do better border security and economy, but what I'm not hearing from the Democrats is, you know, what's their message? What are the two or three things that they're going to do or want to move forward in the midterms and the general election? Because I think it's all kind of drowned out by, we have to stop Trump, mm. but stop doing what he's doing, but what are we going to do to move forward? Yeah, Ben, very fair uh, and good question. So uh, we basically are heading out uh, towards the fall with the following. People say, what are Democrats going to do? Who are Democrats for? And we're saying uh, for the people. One, we want to invest in a robust uh, investment in our infrastructure and create those good family-supporting jobs that come out of that much-needed investment. Two, we want to help uh, make sure that everyone uh, has the ability to have uh, access to health care and address the rising prescription drug prices. And three, we want to address the corruption that we're seeing here in Washington. You know, Donald Trump was successful when he said drain the swamp. The problem is he forgot that big corporations and big banks are part of the swamp, uh, that the special interests that have way too much influence. So if we address those three areas, uh, infrastructure and jobs, uh, health care and prescription drugs, and addressing the corruption here, 
I think those are three things that we're going into November uh, talking to people about in our districts. That's very interesting. I, people were, we had a long conversation about this over the last couple of days on this show. And what we kind of boiled down to was, uh, number one, health care for all, Medicare for all. Number two, ed education for all, uh, debt-free education for all, uh, and, and fix our public schools, by the way. And uh, let's see, what was number three? So, yeah, anyhow, we, we're, we're pulling together these things. and Oh, number three, uh, good paying jobs for all. Uh, raise the minimum wage, bring back unions. So, uh, so two of the three are there. Um, yeah. And I think the third one, just because it's an underlying issue on everything, is you know, everything from um, you know, Ryan Zinke to uh, Pruitt to, I mean, look at everyone, all the corruption that's been here. I mean, the swamp has not been drained. It's been dredged bigger in a high-rise luxury condo that's been built on it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it certainly seems that way. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Hartman Program. It's Middays with Mark, Thursday edition. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan in just a moment. You can contact him at pocan.house.gov or you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Uh, Mike, listening on KPFK in Los Angeles, you're on the air with um, Congressman Mark Pocan. Right, thank you. Uh, Congressman, this is a completely hypothetical situation, but if you were facing election in a few weeks and you had a dark secret which might hurt your election prog uh, uh, chances and you asked your uh, imaginary fixer if we could make a $150,000 payment to conceal the information, whether it's through cash or a dummy corporation, wouldn't that violate federal election laws? Uh, and I think that's exactly what people are looking at right now, right, with the release uh, of the tape and the information about, you know, uh, this payoff uh, right before the election. Uh, and there could be a lot more. We know there now is potentially a dozen tapes out there. But Michael Cohen looks like uh, he's going to be cooperating. And uh, I'm assuming you're going to hear a lot more about this as we move towards November. The Mueller investigation now has over 30 indictments. Uh, it's doing its job. And um, I, I, I personally am very interested to see uh, the continued direction of it, but I think uh, this could very likely be a part of that direction. And Stephen in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman Pocan, thank you for again uh, offering your time to everybody. Um, I was wondering last month we had some uh, mentioning by the press that uh, Trump's charity foundation was using funds from charity to pay uh, financing his uh, campaign. Is that true and is that being investigated or is this just another one of the constant? Uh, criminal acts this group of people has been doing. Yeah, actually, this is, I believe, part of the case in New York State that the Attorney General is taking up. So um, they are looking at the charity. And, and from what I've heard, in some cases, they're uh, very, very concerned in very different ways on this than the Mueller investigation, just because it's a, uh, a different front they're dealing with um, in New York State from the Attorney General. So uh, you're right. And then also, uh, I believe a judge this week said uh, they can move forward on a case on the Emoluments Clause uh, related to the Trump Hotel here in D.C. So there are some steps forward in looking uh, after this, uh, the abuse of this president and his family uh, while serving in the White House. So I think it, it's a good thing. We're moving in the right direction. Robert in Seattle. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you for taking my call. Second time caller. First time I asked about uh, visiting neighboring districts and then uh, adopt a district seemed to come along and I think uh, I feel great about it and keep up the good work on that. Uh, Progressive Caucus, please continue to promote Medicare for All. But on the devil's advocate side, what does it look like regarding all the employees that are employed um, pushing paper and billing and, and where, how does that phase in or phase out in a Medicare for All situation? Sure, uh, Robert. Uh, thanks. So first of all, at the Adopted Town Hall, we had, I think, 29 members uh, went into other districts and yeah, I did five alone in Paul Ryan's district, and, uh, you know, here uh, Randy Bryce is scared away. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, I think, you know, uh, everyone's involvement in this has been helpful. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, specifically on Medicare for All, you know, what we did is we just formed a caucus specifically to deal around this issue. Um, uh, Pramila Jayapal, Debbie Dingle, and Mark Vesey are, are, I guess, co-chairing would be the right word, uh, that caucus. We have over 70 members involved with that, which is a great kickoff. And uh, that's exactly what they're looking at right now. We've had a bill in the House for a while that dealt with this. Bernie Sanders introduced a bill this session in the Senate. We probably are going to draft our bill to match a little more to where the Senate bill is, just because the number of years have passed from when this was originally proposed. But I was just asked by a reporter about this as I left votes this morning, 
And, you know, what we're doing at this point is building the support for it. We already know Medicare is an extremely popular program that makes it easier to expand off of that program. But there will be some details that have to be discussed about uh, people who have jobs displaced uh, and other things. But uh, bottom line is we still have an educational process. Uh, the good news is when you do town halls, uh, whether it be in Paul's district or mine, uh, the subject of health care always comes up. And inevitably, when you get to the subject of Medicare for All, it gets the single greatest response. After watching the Republicans try to attack health care all last year, and they did successfully do it in their tax bill in November, people are concerned, and I think they're looking at this as a possible uh, route, and we just have to make sure we're explaining to people what it would uh, mean uh, to take care of this. And then those details will happen, I think, when we get to a new session. Linda in Coconut Creek, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, thank you, Congressman, for taking my call. Hi, Tom. We love you guys. Thanks. Um, I just had a question for you. Um, have you heard anything up on the Hill about the central state's Teamsters pension plan that's about to defund in about five years? You're talking yeah. 400,000 Teamsters, and we want to yeah. know what's going on. When, and I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not being disrespectful. They want to bail out these farmers when we put 30, 40 years of our lives in. We want to know what's going on with our pension. Yeah, very, very. And I'll take uh, your answer question. off the air. Yeah, Linda, so there is um, a special committee between the House and the Senate that's been appointed bipartisan to look at pensions, and they're supposed to have something uh, figured out by November. I would be lying if I told you I think it's going to be super successful in doing that. Um, I think, you know, pensions in general are a huge issue we're going to have to deal with the next few years um, as we find a lot of people are independent contractors and have nothing put aside uh, whatsoever in terms of benefits. Specifically, your question around the central states is about 200, I think, different um, uh, organizations that are part of that fund that could go bankrupt, and we have to address it. And that's the main thrust of what they're looking at. But there's also the miners and some other folks that are really involved in this. Um, and as you know, Linda, uh, part of your negotiations for salary in lieu of increases in salary, you took uh, increases in your pension or your benefits. And now to take that away would be like double dipping. And you didn't get it in your pay, but you negotiated that as a future payment. And uh, we have to address this issue. So uh, I'm hoping that this committee will at least flush out some of the details. I don't think they're going to have the final resolution by November, but it is absolutely on people's radar. Great. With Congressman Mark Pocan is taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Hartman program. It's Middays with Mark, Thursday edition. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan in just a moment. He is the co-chair of the House or of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and uh, also you know, represents the state of Wisconsin. Pocan.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Congressman Mark Pocan on the line taking your calls. Linda in Santa Rosa, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello. Um, I think the, the mention of the uh, um, authorization of use of military force previously uh, is, is a stop measure because what we really need to do is update our Constitution in regards to the War Powers Act because that was written back at the time when we had to muster troops because we didn't have a standing army. And if we declared war, we took a month or so to get across the ocean. Now we have technology with a, you know, a full standing armory all over the world, and you can launch missiles and send um, fighter jets in, in a couple hours to get you know, all over the place. And so I think that the Constitution, and I don't know what the amendment should be, but to recognize that the technology is far different than when it was first drafted, and it may need a, a, you know, a gang of eight or something like that, congressional leaders that are working with the president and the executive branch in order to respond to things, because it's not going to take a month like it used to. Yeah, Linda, that's a really great point. Um, you know, uh, the only thing I guess I would say is a uh, constitutional amendment is really hard to get done. Uh, the AUMF, we've had uh, some success, uh, some bipartisan success. Republicans also realize that presidents in both parties uh, have very happily not come to Congress and just uh, taken it on their own to deal with this because it saves them time. But the whole idea is they need to make the case to Congress because we're the closest to the people. So. Um, the AUMF, we were really close uh, last year. Barbara Lee uh, got it passed in our Appropriations Committee with, I think, an almost unanimous vote, Democrats and Republicans, and then Paul Ryan himself took it out uh, of the process. So uh, we still have some work to do on that, but we're starting to build some bipartisan support. Uh, but I really appreciate what you said, because I think you brought up a really good point, that 
you know, uh, sometimes some of these things are in place at a very different time and era. And, uh, you know, you can certainly move troops in a very different way now. And even how warfare is done is very different now. Yeah. The Second Amendment, I think, is an equal anachronism in that context. Larry, in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, Mark, I wish you were my congressman. I want to know your view, uh, thoughts on my view that the country needs Joe Biden uh, as a healer, uh, just like uh, uh, Ford was a healer. Um, he's in a unique position uh, with uh, uh, all his experience and contacts and friends in the Congress. Even if we could only have him for four years, he could help bring this country together. And I think he ought to be combined with a female progressive uh, uh, that would help uh, uh, line up all the, uh, the new forces in, the, in our party. That's, uh, I'm interested in what you think. Thank you. Yeah, Larry, uh, thank you for the call. And, uh, you know, hopefully this fall, um, uh, Iron Stash will be your new member, so you're going to be very proud of a member instead of having a, a you know, who, who you have right now. Um, uh, or actually, I'll uh, you might actually have a different member, but sorry about that. Um, what I can tell you is you're going to have a lot of presidential candidates. My guess is you may have 15 to 20 um, potential people running like the Republicans did in the last cycle because uh, there is a lot of interest. Uh, I'm seeing it from governors. I'm seeing it from senators. I'm seeing it from members of the House. I'm seeing it from non-elected. I'm seeing it from business leaders. I think everyone figures if Donald Trump can be president, why can't they? And uh, you're going to have a lot of potential candidates. So, uh, you know, Joe Biden clearly brings in a lot of experience, uh, as does Bernie Sanders, as does Elizabeth Warren. There's a lot of folks that would fit that um, description. Uh, but I think uh, we'll have a good, robust debate uh, when people announce. And I think uh, soon after the November elections, you'll see uh, a lot of the candidates really starting to be presidential candidates. Um, but, you know, I think uh, any Democrat will do a better job than what we've seen with Donald Trump. Richard, listening to Chicago's Progressive Talk in Chicago, is uh, Richard, you're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Oh, hi. Um, I, I wonder if Democrats, I've been wanting to get on to ask this question. Uh, do Democrats think they have a media problem or an issue, uh, you know, getting the, our message across, um, you know, and, and also uh, becoming significant in the political debate? Is it for, uh, you mentioned earlier on that uh, you had done, you had some, uh, several amendments weren't being covered by the mainstream media. So I've been wondering and waiting for the Democrats to start to get ahead of the media message and not just being, you know, playing catch up after uh, hoping that Trump will eventually, you know, go away. Judy uh, Woodruff had a, a session, uh, uh, had sessions on to talk about the uh, trade imbalance for 10 minutes. Not one Democrat was invited in. I, I just seem like, like the Republicans have figured out how to do to get their message and grab 100% of the airways. And I don't know, I'm not an expert, I'm not a politician, but aren't there anybody, isn't there anybody working on how to uh, elevate our presence and our significance in the political debate nowadays? Um, so sure. it's kind of a long question. Yeah, well, Richard, I mean, a part of it, the problem we have is we're not in charge right now, so uh, they often go to uh, the Republicans uh, to talk about things. And when they do talk about some of the opposition issues, uh, some of the cable networks especially, uh, they talk about Russia, they talk about Russia, and then, then once in a while they talk about Russia. And uh, occasionally they'll talk about health care or jobs or the actual issues that people talk about at their kitchen tables they're concerned. I'm not trying to diminish uh, Russia. I think there's a place in every newscast that you can talk about some of the developments that are happening on the Mueller investigation or related issues. But... That is not what most people talk about 24-7, is Russia. Quite honestly, it is um, you know, the, the corruption that they see in Washington on multiple levels, of which Russia is some of it. Uh, they talk about whether or not um, they have good-paying jobs, and, uh, and the infrastructure, I think, is one of the things that people really do believe we need to invest in. And they talk about uh, health care and prescription drug prices. Uh, those are some of the top issues. There's other things, but uh, I think often um, it's hard because... Uh, how the media covers things is not necessarily where real people are at, and therefore they don't cover some of the issues that we raise in Washington. I, I would add Jeff Cohen from um, uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Media, fair.org, uh, uh, points out that, you know, in the, in the, in the years prior to the uh, President Obama becoming president and the Democrats taking over the House and Senate in, like, you know, 2005 to 2008, 
Um, Republicans were overwhelmingly, like, you know, 60% or thereabouts, the, the guests on all the Sunday shows. And when they were asked why, the answer was always, well, the Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the White House, so they're the ones in power. We should have them on more frequently. Then Obama wins, and the Democrats win, and they continue to have 60% Republicans, or high, you know, higher than 50%. And when they were asked why, the answer was, well, the Republicans are out of power, so people need to hear their voices. And you know, so it's like, no matter what, no matter what you do, the Sunday shows are always going to be dominated by Republicans. It seems it's this is you know the 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 preference of corporate America or corporate yeah corporate media as far as I can tell. Yeah, and also just you know sometimes they get onto an issue and they decide they're going to write about the issue no matter what. So you know reporters around here in Washington all want to know about the leadership battle in the Democratic caucus when I guarantee there is no one in the real world who cares much about that right now. Mm. Um, but that's what they want to talk about here. So you know we often are fighting against uh, those. Those those currents. Yeah, Norman in uh, Millsboro, Delaware. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, good good afternoon, uh, Tom. I, I have to tell you first uh, before I ask my question that you and Com- Congressman Pocan are definite treasures. I mean, you don't know how much the public appreciates you guys when you come on and give us this information that we don't usually get. Well, thank you, Norman. And, yeah, thank thanks you. for listening, Sirius XM. Thank thank you very much. I mean, it's, it's, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Anyway, let me ask my question so I can get off. I want to find out, I know uh, um, uh, Paul Ryan is trying to kill uh, or trying to, to make drastic cuts in Medicare and Social Security. I would like to know exactly, your, you know, where, where are we with that now? Is, is, is there going to be cuts and who's going to be affected? Sure. So, you know, Paul Ryan, um, his entire career has been built on a couple of things. One, cutting taxes for the wealthy, for their donors, for people who belong to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and the other is to go after things like Social Security and Medicare, which, given when his father died, he was a recipient of Social Security, um, really uh, is pretty amazing, right, that he wants to take away the ladder for other people who need help like he got. But those are what he's focused on. He got his tax bill done in November, and he was even able to throw some health care stuff in there. So we're all going to have double-digit increases in October because he had to give uh, $2 trillion to the wealthiest in this country to that tax bill. Uh, I don't think he's going to be able to go directly after them between now and November because the elections are too volatile and people really support Social Security and Medicare. But he will continue to find backdoor ways to try to go after them. They're even talking about a tax bill 2.0 in September, where, again, they'll probably uh, offer a couple uh, little bits to the middle class and then take care of their donors. And they may try to do some backdoor uh, attacks in that bill, so we have to watch it. But the good news is people support Social Security. They support Medicare, as long as we continue to fight for that and elect candidates who will fight for it and oppose those who will cut it, uh, we can make sure that we uh, protect them. But I would also argue uh, we need to strengthen them, not just protect them, and that needs to be part of the national debate. By, by backdoor attacks, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that in the uh, GOP tax bill, the Republican tax bill that passed uh, last year, that they reduced the funding for administrative uh, functions in Social Security and Medicare. And the consequence of that is that when you call Social Security or you call Medicare or you go visit their offices, instead of waiting for 10 minutes or a half hour, you're going to start waiting for two and three hours. People are going to start getting more and more, uh, frankly, pissed off about you know the, these agencies and, and more willing to accept the idea that, oh, United Healthcare will take your call just like that. Right? Um, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And then also, you know, they want people to um, then decide uh, the privatization is the, is the right way to go, and that furthers their case. But, you know, with Paul Ryan, I know him very well from being in my neighboring district. Um, it's been tax policy for the wealthy and going after Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, there you go. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. It's Middays with Mark Thursday edition here on the Tom Hartman Program. 46 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan in just a moment. Uh, you can reach him at Rep. Mark Pocan on Twitter. And his website is pocan.house.gov. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, 
the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm gonna write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I gotta do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm gonna get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. His website's uh, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com with two Fs. And you can tweet him at profwolf with two Fs. Professor, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here, even if it's by my cell phone. Yeah, it's always great having you with us. Uh, there's a, a piece over at Naked Capitalism titled America's Subprime Economy, which suggests that the economic uh, growth of the last two years in particular, uh, but it's, you know, the kind of the peak of a growing trend has been driven instead of being driven by spending at the top 60% of the economy, which I guess is normal. Um, it's being driven by the bottom 40% and that those people in the bottom 40% of the economy are borrowing in order to accomplish that, which suggests to me that they've kind of hit the point after, you know, what, a decade out from the financial crisis, the Bush crash, where they've run out of everything that they could do. Uh, in, and now they've got to resort to borrowing to maintain their standard of living. And that seems to me like a really, really dangerous, like heading for the cliff kind of thing. I'm curious, your thoughts on this, or am I exaggerating the importance of this? No, no. If anything, I would argue that you, uh, you're being modest or moderate in what you have to say. Uh, and here's my reasoning. The 2008 crash was a cataclysmic blow to all the people that had borrowed money in the years leading up to that. And we're talking about the 1990s, at least, back even into the 1980s, when wages stopped rising in the United States, which happened at the, in the, during the 1970s. The American dream still was in the minds of the American working people. And since you couldn't get more wages to buy that increasingly pricey American dream, you went into debt. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to understand that if the 1990s and early into this century... Uh, you borrowed more and more on a basically stagnant real income, this is an unsustainable arrangement. You will eventually have more debt that you can service, and that's what happened in 2007 and 8. And it left a terrible uh, fear in the minds of the American working class to ever let themselves get loaded up again with that kind of debt, so that when the, the report that you just summarized comes out, People who, who understand this realize that the American working people must, again, be at a point of desperation, not just to borrow when they can't do anything else, but to borrow when it's in their fresh memory how terribly dangerous that was. So it's a perfect indicator of the stress level of this economic system just below the veneer of the hype of everything being fine that you get from the government. Yeah, what I'm seeing is that the non-housing debt of, of American consumers, that would be credit card debt, car loans, uh, but not, not mortgages, but the non-housing and student loans uh, was at as low as 16% in 1992, and it's been climbing steadily, and it's particularly exploded since uh, 2012, and it's now uh, over 26%. So that's, you know, 16% to 26% as... Uh, an, that's as, right. It's an enormous 
reliance of the uh, of the mass of people on this debt for which there is no basically no collateral the, the student debt the uh, the car debt the uh, credit card debt and so forth and it's a sign it's a sign of desperation that the, the savings have been used up if there were any um, and the basic cost of living in America at this time is such that it, unless you're willing to, to live at a drastically reduced standard of living, you load up on debt. And I want to remind everyone, we now know that the so-called boom of the 1980s and 90s, of which Bill Clinton used to speak so proudly, was a boom based on debt, on a crescendo of debt. And it proved to be as dangerous as that always is. To be aware now that we're going into the same sequence what to make people's heads explode, or at least some kind of national debate. And let me add one more thing. We are now going into an extravagant expansion of government debt right alongside, because the tax cut, the Trump tax cut of December 2017, uh, is now showing up as a front-page story on today's New York Times, is showing up as a drastic uh, worsening of the deficit of the government. So the government's loaded up in debt, and the population is loading up in debt. This is a story whose ending we've seen all too often, and it's an ending that ought to make people tremble. Mm. Meantime, we have uh, Axios reporting that while, uh, as a consequence of the GOP tax scam, the, this, this giant tax cut, corporations uh, took home massively more pay than pretty much anybody else, corporate CEOs, excuse me. Uh, and, and, and the average worker's income over the last two years has actually declined a little bit. That's right. And, and, and if you understand how these flows work, you can be even more taken aback. Here's how it works. In December of 2017, I mean, this, this was going on before, but here's how much worse it's got. In December 2017, you cut corporate taxes from 35% to 21%. Now, over the last six months, these corporations have been generating wild amounts of spendable cash because they don't have to pay billions in taxes they used to pay. Well, what have they done? Created a lot of jobs? Not at all. They have mostly used it to do what's called stock buybacks. They use the money they don't pay in taxes to go into the market and buy the shares of their own companies. Why do they do that? Because the pay packages of the CEOs and the other top officials are linked to the value of the commodity, of the stocks in, in the stock market. So they use the money the government doesn't collect in taxes, go into the stock market, drive up the share value of their company, and then use that increased share value to draw in billions, with a B, of extra corporate pay. Uh, and that's what that Axios article does and what other research shows. So this has been a, a, a double bonanza. First, they get their taxes cut. And now they can boost their salaries into the stratosphere of millions of dollars by pouring that money into the stock market, which, by the way, is what Trump and the GOP said would not happen, that jobs would be created. Nothing of the sort has been uh, achieved. Those jobs that have been uh, created are in the service sector, pay the least amount of money, and therefore can't affect the larger economic system in the way that they had predicted. So it, this is a perfect storm. And as I said, this cannot end well. Yeah, and and I would add that you know prior to the Reagan presidency, this was this form of of uh, corporate manipulation and the whole stock buybacks as compensation was illegal. And it yeah, was. And by, it, go ahead. Yeah, I would just add another thing that ought to frighten people. More and more, the stock, the Securities and Exchange Commission filings are showing that these corporate executives, having driven up the shares of of the stock in the way I described by using money they used to pay in taxes are cashing out. That is, they're taking these enhanced value shares and selling them in the market because they themselves see that this can't end well. And so it's better to unload those shares now rather than risk them uh, being in your portfolio when the reckoning comes uh, the way it did in 2008 and nine, when shares lost you know, half their value in a matter of weeks. The anxiety level, even of those in charge and who are riding this tiger, the anxiety level ought to be a warning to all of us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in our last minute or three here, what, what, uh, how do you see this ending? Number one, you, you mentioned a couple of times, I don't see this ending well. 
Uh, what can people do about that? And what can people do br more broadly about fix or what should we be doing to fix the economy? Well, you know, again, in, in the two minutes that, that, that we might have for this, uh, I think the best I can say to that question is you, we have got to learn as a nation to think differently about this issue from the way we have. This is not going to be fixed by a, a, a different interest rate from the Federal Reserve or a new law passed by Congress or even a change of president from Trump uh, to something else that, that's less crazy. We're dealing with, a, with an underlying economic system that doesn't work, that's run out of gas, and there has to be a debate about what kinds of much more basic changes than we've been willing to look at in this country are necessary so that we don't go from pillar to post, from one crisis to another, worrying all the time the way we've just done for the last 15 minutes about how and when the next perfect storm is going to uh, overwhelm us. We've had a 50-year period of, of cheerleading for the capitalist system we have. It's time we grew up as a nation, matured, asked the hard questions about a system that works this way, and then really face the question and debate it. Can we do better than this system? I'm one of those who's convinced we can, but I don't want to force it on anybody. I just want us to have the courage as a nation to realize these difficulties that you and I discuss and have that debate finally as we should have. Remarkable. Congress, uh, excuse me, uh, Professor Richard Wolf. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad for the opportunity. And I hope in, in future weeks we can continue to talk about what those solutions might be. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, you can tweet him at uh, Democracy at WRK or at Prof Wolf with two Fs. Uh, his website, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two Fs.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Let's uh, talk with Laurie Wallach. There's uh, some just amazing stuff going on on the trade front right now. And the director, excuse me, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, tradewatch.org or citizen.org slash trade, is Laurie Wallach, a friend of the show. Laurie, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm up here in Washington, up in the hill in the belly of the beast. Oh, my. And people can tweet you at Wallach Laurie, L-O-R-I. Uh, Laurie, I, I wrote an op-ed about this for Alternet. I don't know if you saw it a couple days ago, um, suggesting that Donald Trump is so incompetent that even that, you know, when he was first elected, uh, Bernie, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, me on this program, we all said, you know, you know there are some areas where he campaigned. Uh, like, for example, on, on changing our trade systems, uh, where we broadly agree with him and we will work with him if he's got some reasonable policies. But he is doing all this trade stuff by executive order, which means that, uh, you know, because it's not being run through Congress, which means it could evaporate the day he leaves office. And I don't see where any American companies are going to invest hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in new factories to build washing machines or make steel or whatever based on a promise that can only last at the most six years. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem like it would make sense. Is, what are your thoughts on, on, on this? Well, it's interesting you ask because today in the Senate Appropriations Committee that the top trade ambassador, who's part of the cabinet, a guy named Robert Lighthizer, was asked similar questions by various senators. The gist of what he said actually made more sense than anything this administration has said to explain their various trade actions. He said that we needed to basically make two things clear. One, that the status quo of the U.S. being the place every other country dumped their subsidized exports from whom technology was taken but then production was done in another country, that we had a signal that that was over and that the U.S. wasn't going to continue to have this huge chronic job-killing trade deficit. And then number two, he spoke specifically with respect to China. We needed to effectively cut off the ability of China to have its government elite rely on stability in their country based on making a lot of stuff, most of it subsidized, and selling it here and expecting that the U.S. would just absorb those goods and outsource its job. Right. And that from his narrative of this, the tariffs are a tool 
to basically make clear in a practical way, just cut off the dumping, that these Chinese goods cannot just continue to be subsidized and dumped here. And that said, uh, it has been the first time a narrative of what they're up to has been put forward, and there has been an enormous amount of chaos, and I would say some recklessness with respect to what countries are getting targeted. The trade minister, the trade representative, basically explained some of the technical points, which is, you know, if you just sanction China and then China sells the stuff to Canada, which then sells it to us, you haven't. The way he put it is it's like fishing with a big hole in your net. So there, there, there seems to be some elements of logic, but boy, you wouldn't know it from the way it's been implemented. Another really interesting thing that came out in the hearing is the fact that this guy who seems to have a strategy isn't actually in charge of a bunch of these tariffs. He, he, he's focused on the ones specifically about China and technology theft. Mm. And apparently the Commerce Department is 100% in control of all of these tariffs that have been hitting Europe and have been hitting this is Robert, and Mexico. This is uh, uh, the billionaire. 232. 232, I'm sorry. Steel, the steel and aluminum oh, tariff. Oh, right. But, but what you're saying is that Wilbur Ross at the Commerce Department is doing this rather than yes. Robert Lighthizer, the economic advisor. So, yes, and Lighthizer is the guy who's renegotiating NAFTA. Right. And here's the thing. The tariffs are kind of spun out of control. Believe it or not, the NAFTA renegotiations are still going pretty damn well. Yeah, I saw you set, you set out a, uh, a, a note today saying today's D.C. visit by top Mexican trade officials may re reveal whether a renegotiated NAFTA deal can be signed in 2018. Is this good news? Yeah, well, I think it's super helpful that... Basically, the top officials of the incoming progressive AMLO administration is now joining in Washington the current trade minister of the existing administration in Mexico, and they're sitting down with their part, their equivalent in the U.S. Lighthizer. And the Mexic the shift that's happened basically is after the Mexican presidential election, the outgoing administration, the incoming administration, both agree for different reasons that they really want the current president to sign this deal. AMLO doesn't necessarily want to have to have this be one of the first things he does. So there is now one month and five days before they run out of time to have a deal they could sign this year, and that's because of the U.S. legislative procedures that have to have 90 days of advance notice to Congress. Hmm. So if they don't get a deal announced by the 31st of August, officially sent to Congress with a formal announcement, then it can't be signed by this Mexican president. And then a lot of uncertainty yeah. enters into the dynamic. So what might a, a renegotiated NAFTA deal look like? Would it, first of all, would it be just Mexico and the United States? Trump has talked about bilateral deals rather than multilateral deals as his preference. Yeah, I think the strategy here is that Canada's been basically playing rope-a-dope. They won't come to negotiations. If they come, they won't make any deals. Mexico seems very committed to getting a new deal. So I think that the strategy is both Mexico and the U.S. think Canada will come to the table with more seriousness if they realize that the U.S. and Mexico either are about to have a deal or have a deal. Right. So they've stopped sort of waiting for Canada to show up, and they're just proceeding, the U.S. and Mexico are proceeding towards the deal. And they've been getting some remarkably good stuff agreed. When I say remarkably good, from a progressive's perspective, mm -hmm. remarkably good. And I've actually spent the last two weeks up in the Hill talking to members of Congress and actually, it's very funny because uh, this very day I have uh, my nephew with me. No, he's been going to legislative meetings, and he actually he's got a, he's got a new name for NAFTA. Hmm. Not a fair trade agreement. <laughs> so we've got it. <laughs> Thank got you. Obvious up here, and what we've been telling members of Congress is that uh, you got to get the the incentives for outsourcing there at the heart of NAFTA removed. You got to add binding labor and environmental standards to bring up wages. You got to get rid of the ban and buy local and buy American. And you have to do something about wages in Mexico, which now are as low as in China. They're down right. since NAFTA. And how about taking and out Chapter are, 11? Well, and th I'm just getting there. And those yeah. are all things that Mexico and the U.S. are getting close to. And here's something really exciting. The countries have basically agreed to get out investor state dispute settlement. That's Chapter 11 the that US, I mentioned, yeah. That's great. The U.S. Yeah, the U.S. said, we're not going to do it. You guys can do it together if you want. And then Mexico said, well, we're not going to do it if you're not going to do it. And Canada said, oops. 
And for people who don't know what we're talking about, these, these ISDS, these, this Chapter 11 agreement, is basically if a company in Mexico doesn't like a law in the United States, for example, we passed a law protecting uh, you know, dolphin-safe tuna, right, creating, the, creating that whole thing, that you had to, if you're going to fish for tuna, you had to do it a certain way that didn't kill dolphins. And a Mexican company sued us, sued the United States, under NAFTA, saying that's a violation of our right to free trade. And the, the uh, th three-judge tribunal, essentially, who are all corporate lawyers for NAFTA, ruled against the United States. And you know that was the end of uh, what had been a 25-year-long campaign by the American Humane Society to get legislation passed. And tuna is no longer a dolphin safe in the United States. That, if, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. That's the kind of thing that happens under Chapter 11 of, of, of NAFTA, the investor state dispute settlements, that you're saying both countries are now saying we don't have to do this. Well, and you know that 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 back and forth between the countries and changing the laws is really bad. Then, in addition, this investor state allows the corporations to directly sue the government. So, right. folks, who remember like the XL pipeline fight. Well, when Obama said, "Nope, TransCanada, you can't. We're not permitting that. You can't do that. Public doesn't want it. Not good for the climate." That company demanded fifteen billion dollars from U.S. taxpayers because. Their NAFTA rights, their right to invest and have a pipeline have been denied. Right. And they basically held, they held on to this $15 billion sword of Damocles, saying to Trump, unless and until you reauthorize that pipeline, $15 billion, and we're going to go have that fight in front of three corporate attorneys. And there's not any appeal. We get, right. our, we get special rights as corporations under NAFTA. It's so blatant. And there's just a whole string of those cases. So at this point... Just under half a billion dollars has been paid out in these NAFTA investor attacks on the environment, energy, health, toxic spans, water policies, timber policies. And, you know, Tom, between the fact that there are $4 billion in additional ISDS cases pending under NAFTA and every week more jobs are being outsourced under NAFTA using... The NAFTA rules, as you said, anyone who wants to look it up, Tom's right. Go to the go to Google NAFTA and look for Chapter 11. That's what he was talking about. Those are the investor outsourcing protections. It's not a problem of the 90s. It's continuing every day. We cannot have it stay this way. So the, the good news is campaign has really been building up. If folks want to get involved, you can go to a website called Replace NAFTA, www.replacenafta. And across the country this August, folks are going to be meeting up with their members of Congress, some of them at their offices if they'll take a meeting. Otherwise, they're going to find them at parades and events. And they're going to be coming with a demand that has unified environmental, labor, consumer, civil rights, faith groups across the country, which is a NAFTA replacement must be concluded and you have to get rid of the investor state, investor protections that are rigging the rules for outsourcing and exposing a loss to attack. And you have to add labor and environmental standards that are really enforced. And then we'll have basically, that's the demand of progressives for decades. Yeah. And hopefully... I think a lot of Republicans would support that, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and hopefully, you know, the Trump administration will make it happen. I mean, I'm not holding my breath on them doing anything competently, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Lori Wallach, Executive Director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, uh, tradewatch.org. You can tweet her at Wallach Lori. Lori, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Always great talking with you. We'll be back. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited. 
So don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. And welcome back. Jesse in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Jesse, what's on your mind? Yeah, I, I just heard you say, uh, you know, this Trump administration, you know, and I, I just couldn't help but think to myself, I was like, you know that Bill Clinton is the one that actually started ICE, and then Obama started DACA? So all of these problems really have nothing to do with Trump other than Trump enforcing the law. Uh, you know, no, I, I'm it, sorry. I, it's I, not, I, there I, is, there, Jesse, you're absolutely wrong. You're, you're just simply wrong. I mean, ICE may have started during Bill Clinton. I frankly don't know the history of it. But there is no law that says that an asylum seeker coming to the United States needs to be put into a cage and separated from her children. There is no law that says that, number one, that but Trump is following. And number two, the law, no, listen to me for just a minute, Jesse, and then I'll, I'll listen to you. And number two, the, the law that does exist, that is both the United States law and international treaty that we have signed, says that for every country in the world, if somebody presents themselves at your border and says, I am fleeing for my life, I am seeking asylum, you have to take them into the country and determine whether their claim is legitimate. And if it is, then you can have quotas on how, much, uh, how many asylum seekers you'll take. You can limit it. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to get around that, but you must take it seriously. So these people are completely legal in presenting themselves at the border. What they, they didn't even commit the crime of coming into the United States illegally. All of them came in here completely legally. Donald Trump is the one who is breaking the law, and that's why federal judges keep trying to stop him, and in some cases have successfully stopped him. Now, it's your turn, Jesse. Yeah, see, it's like, why ain't they safe once they get into Mexico? If they're fleeing such violence and such gang violence, why don't they feel safe once they get into Mexico? Because the gangs that are... Like, that why are... do they have to come this far? They're, they're leaving, you know... Guatemala or whatever, you know. Yeah, Guatemala, why, don't they feel, why, why, don't, why don't they feel safe once they get that's into Mexico? That's a good Mexico? question. That's, that's a very good question, and I'm yeah, guessing why, that a lot of people are asking. Why do you the extra miles? My, like, why do you get the extra miles in Mexico? My now, guess is, Jesse, you know, if, if you're a person of good will and good conscience, you would want to know the answer to that. And but it's not about morals, it's about law. Well, hey, chill out for a second. If the answer to that is that a lot of them are, and I'm guessing the answer probably is. You know, 90% of these people who flee Guatemala, El Salvador, or Nicaragua actually stay in Mexico. Uh, you know, and 10% come to the United States, or 3% come to the United States. But if it's 90% coming to the United States, then that would tell you that the same gangs and the same drug lords who are running those three countries now, thanks to Reagan's foreign policy, are also well, uh, well integrated into Mexico and the Mexican police force and things like that. So if you're fleeing those specific gangs, you're not safe in Mexico either. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know as a parent that if I thought that the situation here in Portland, Oregon was so desperate that my children were going to die or that I was going to die, but particularly that my children were going to die, and the only way that I could get them to safety would be to travel through Mexico to Guatemala and say, please, give me asylum, I would do it. Wouldn't you? No, I would stay in Mexico. Why would I drag my kid? How is that not child abuse, dragging your kid across four countries? Yeah, Jesse, you are, you are demonstrating a, a stunning lack of empathy, just a stunning inability to feel what other people feel. I, 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 I feel so sad for you, Jesse, and I will pray for you. We'll be back. Welcome back. It's 10 minutes before the hour, and Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I heard a, a disturbing news clip a few days ago, and I haven't heard anything about it since, and maybe you can clarify it for me if you heard it. Apparently, after the summit, when uh, Putin and uh, Trump met privately, it was on Russian TV a while after that that Putin said that we, our military was going to join the Russian military in Syria and fight for Assad. Well, the, the, the part about fight for Assad is not what I heard. I, you know, I, what I did hear is that the Russians were saying that, I mean, right now we're coordinating activities in Syria so we don't shoot each other's planes down. We've got a certain area of airspace, they've got a certain area of airspace, and the people on the ground are actually communicating with each other. That was worked out a year ago. Um, what, oh. they're, what, what they're talking about 
is uh, what Putin apparently is suggesting he and Trump talked about was expanding that military cooperation across the entire country. And that's something that seems like since Putin is supporting Assad and we're supporting a, a rebel group who turns out to be uh, in some many cases affiliated with ISIS, um, that, but whatever, you know, that that is probably something that wouldn't be a good idea for either one of us, frankly, from my point of view. Um, okay. But, but uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that Trump is, nobody in the Trump administration is saying that, that, yes, Trump agreed to this. And the Russians are saying, yes, he did. And I'm waiting for the tapes to come out, frankly. Um, okay, the disturbing part of that, though, was actually something else. I heard that CENTCOM, okay, our, mm -hmm. our main commanding area there, right. apparently some high-level Russian actually called the commander after the commander said that we, we had no knowledge of this new policy where we're going to be doing this. Right. And this Russian actually said to our CENTCOM commander, how dare you disrespect Trump this way? Is that possible oh, yeah. that nobody minds that? Yeah, uh, it's pretty shocking. And I, the CENTCOM commander himself was on TV. You know, the, the reporter said, you know, have you been told to work with the Russians? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't think it's a good idea. And yeah, so, and then Russians called him. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Amazing. No, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know about that last part, Carol. But, it, you know, it's consistent with this whole narrative. I mean, Trump setting up a meeting with the president of any other country in private, in a, you know, in, in a quiet space, particularly a country that actually has a list of things that they would like out of the United States. So setting up a meeting like that without having his people work out the details in advance, without having at least some witness in the room who can say, yes, this did happen, or no, that didn't happen. He walks in completely unprotected. It's, it's, it's sort of like unprotected sex. I mean, anything could happen. Anything could stick to him as a consequence of that. And he's going to be walking around with us. And, and uh, you know, that and, and the other thing is, you know, three days ago on this program, and, and I, you can go back and listen to it in the podcast, three days ago on this program, I pointed out a news report that I'd seen in the international news, I think it was in the BBC, that Putin had said he's not going to come to Washington, D.C. when Trump invited him to come around the time of the midterm elections. He's just not right. going to come. No, thanks. Right. I'm not interested. Two days, and, and it, it was like two days later then, yesterday, Trump comes out and says, you know, I don't want Putin to come because, uh, you know, it's, uh, things are, you know, this, this Russian wish hunt is just, you know, we'll wait until it's over. Well, yeah. it, and, and the American media is playing it like Trump canceled the trip. Putin yeah. canceled the trip two days earlier, humiliating yeah. Trump. And I don't understand why our television news is not pointing that out. It just boggles my mind because I yeah. reported it on this show. It wasn't a secret. Uh, right. Anyhow, Carol, I got to run, but thank you for the call. You know, it's all great stuff. Uh, all very, very great stuff. Anita in San Antonio. Hey, Anita, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Yeah, it's also that he was meeting privately with the country he was um, being investigated for conspiring with, so right. I think that was a problem, too. Right. But, um, yeah, you had a caller that said that it's not just uh, we need to start talking about it not being about black and white, but it being about rich or poor or class. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to disagree with that because, uh, you know, you can be a rich African-American and you still will get harassed by police more often Oh, Eric Holder white. talked about, you know, being stopped by the cops yeah. as attorney general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a friend whose brother was the chief justice of, the, of uh, the Supreme Court of Texas, and he was stopped for driving while black. Right. Driving to Austin. Right. You know, that's just, you know, and he's, he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Texas. Right. So yeah. Kind of thing class, class offers some small amount of insulation, but, uh, you know, wearing, driving a fancy car, dressing really well, right. looking like you're affluent um, for an African-American, it, it will provide be, some small amount of protection, but it doesn't give anything close yeah. to the protection of white privilege. Nothing close. Exactly. You, yes. I mean, you, you could be a rich football player and you still yeah. get harassed. Yep. So, and and yeah. in fact, we've, we've we seen it happen. Yeah. Excellent point, Anita. Thank you for calling and making it very, uh, very well said. Uh, Melissa in, is it Hawk? Oaxaca, Arizona? Oaxaca City. Aha, okay. okay. Uh, you say it better than me, so was, what's up? Um, I was just responding to the call from Jesse. Um, I travel through Mexico. My husband and I drive through Mexico routinely. And and actually, the Mexicans really, really hate the Guatemalans. So his question um, was, why are these Guatemalan parents fleeing all the way to the United States and not just to Mexico? Yeah, I mean, they there's no there's no safe haven for them in Mexico, mm. and um, Hondurans pretty much fall into the same realm. I know we had some Hondurans that crossed, um, you know, in this batch. So, right. you know, it's just kind of a foolish thought that 
people ought to stop at the other country. Are the police as institutionally hostile to Guatemalans in Mexico as, as they are here? Um, I don't know that they're any more hostile than they are to uh, us, the U.S. people mm -hmm. passing through Mexico. Right. Um, it, it just depends on the mood in the town. So. Yeah. So it's Mexico for Mexicans. Uh, interesting. Okay, thank you for that uh, uh, answer to the question that I had asked Jesse. You know, and I didn't know the answer to. It. I appreciate that, Melissa. Chris in Chicago. Hey, Chris, what's up? Tom? We have one minute left, Chris. It's all yours. I got a quick story to tell you. Uh, I was uh, with a black couple that I had met at a bar. We're driving towards Chicago. You know, I was new to Chicago and all this stuff. The police pulled us over. They pulled me out of the back seat. The Chicago police told me, "You don't want to associate with these people." Start walking. Wait a minute. They pulled him over for driving while black, or did they pull him over because the guy was a, a crime lord or something? No, there was no, I don't know, taillight? I can't remember what it was. All uh, they know. All so I know it was driving while black. Amazing. Amazing. Driving while black. Yeah. I, Chris, thanks for the story. See, I mean, this is real stuff. This is really, and it's got to be really painful stuff for, for you know, people whose skin is darker than mine. I, it, it's just... Hopefully we, we can get through all this, right? I mean, we've got so much work to do, so far to go. We've been pulled so back by the, by, by the Republicans and their identity politics and all this stuff. Um, we need to break through. And I think a big piece of that is gonna be what happens in November. So please play your role in that. It's really important we all get out and get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.